Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Brad Lancaster, author of the Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond series, of which the first book is now available in a revised and updated second edition. In this episode, Brad and I discuss the value of infiltrating water into the soil so that it becomes a resource that we invest during water-rich times so that we can withdraw from that bank only when needed during dry times. As Brad's work includes more than just dry lands, the conversation also includes ideas for storing water in water-rich areas. Along the way, we also look at several listener questions, including fog harvesting, using living systems to handle wet basements, and observing in order to find the right match for plants suitable to wet clay soils. Before we begin, I'd like to thank everyone whose one-time and ongoing support helps to keep this show accessible to everyone who has an internet connection. As I transition my online permaculture work to a gift economy, this podcast depends on your direct assistance to continue producing new episodes. Find out how to make a contribution by going to www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support. Now then, on to Brad Lancaster. I'll join you afterwards with more information. Well then, Brad, if you can begin this conversation about dry lands and permaculture by giving us a bit of your background, biography, how you came to do what you're doing, and we can take the conversation from there. Sure. I grew up in the southwestern U.S., uh, in southern Arizona, and as uh, I grew up, I saw the water situation steadily get worse in my area. Now, I'm not 100 years old, but in the past 100 years, Arizona's lost over 90% of its wetlands and perennial flowing waterways. And my community's seen its groundwater table drop over 300 feet uh, and continue to drop at about three to four feet per year. So I grew up in this beautiful, diverse Sonoran Desert where we've got over 400 native food plants. So it was this amazing abundance that I didn't know how to tap because my parents weren't from here. They were from uh, Kentucky and South Africa. I heard these stories about how people were able to live in this place. And I'd go on hikes and see these amazing ruins and the mano y matates. And just, I, I knew people were processing food. I just didn't know what. And it was also such an arid environment. I mean, how did they make it work with water? And would come upon some water harvesting uh, ruins. So it was this growing up in an area where lots of abundance, yet observing and gaining an awareness of losing this abundance, things kind of going in a downward spiral, um, at least in terms of our water. And I didn't want to be a part of this problem. I wanted to be part of the solution. And permaculture, when I first took a course in that, that's what started to shift things for me because it was uh, solution-based, uh, it was proactive, but best of all for me is it's integrated thinking. And I hadn't really come upon that before. And it just set me on fire, but left me with more questions than answers. Uh, also in terms of water, because I, I took the course because I was intrigued with uh, the idea of water harvesting. I knew that was key for my dryland environment. But uh, I didn't get the amount of info I wanted, and I was a little disappointed. And I told the course instructors that, and then they asked me to teach the course, which was awesome, because it really made me uh, step up my, my game. Um, and I researched everything I could and experimented like crazy and sought out others I could learn from because now I was being asked to carry a greater responsibility. 
And uh, I just got more and more excited as I saw what people did all over the world. And I also was frustrated because there wasn't uh, a, a, an easy go-to resource for all this information I was coming upon. And that's when I decided to write uh, the water harvesting books. They were the books I always wanted. But I want to clarify, while I titled the book Rainwater Harvesting for Dry Lands and Beyond, my first edition it was just dry lands because I wanted to make it clear the bias I was coming from, what I knew, where I lived on a daily basis. But I shifted the title to and beyond because as I continued to travel and research and teach and learn, I realized, wow, this, this works everywhere. There's a dry season. doesn't matter how wet as long as you've got a dry season because you basically the whole idea around the water harvesting is capture the water when it's available, when you've got surplus income, and make it, you know, hold on to it in some way to make it available in the drier times when it's more scarce. And there's so many different ways of, of doing it. But also, I just want to make clear that I come from a permaculture background. I come from an integrated background. And this water harvesting, it's just bait. It's bait for something bigger, more whole. I just put that out there in a way, I hope, that people will see, wow, I can harvest water just by harvesting the sun. I can harvest water just by harvesting the wind. I can harvest water by harvesting shade. And then as they start to learn this, maybe it shifts around to where they're, oh, I could harvest wind. And then it goes back to that would also harvest sun. And that would also harvest shade if I do it in a conscious, integrated way. And yeah, it just gets more and more stimulating and dynamic for me that way. So if people pick up my books, particularly the new second edition, they will be getting a lot of tools for harvesting sun, wind, and shade as well as water. Because again, the water was just the bait to start to go for something greater. So I did not start off studying water in college. I studied anthropology, Spanish, and humanities, and I came to all this uh, after uh, college and uh, have just been continuing ever since. And it just gets funner and funner as I learn more and uh, play with more and, and, and live with more, even as things get more challenging. I love the way that the stories go because my background long, long ago in a lifetime far away was in anthropology and sociology before I became a computer scientist and left that field to become a permaculturist. And When did you take your first PDC? It was 1993. Your bias in the title is certainly a bias that I come into this conversation with because Drylands is how I most commonly hear your name and your work referenced. Well, that makes sense. I mean, it's obviously my, my bias and where I live and have the most experience, but it goes beyond Drylands. Let me give some examples of that. So I was just in Kingston, Canada this summer, and in the area there, they were starting to have a, a lot of problems with the drinking water. They're surrounded by these amazing, huge, fresh water bodies, the Great Lakes and, and the St. Lawrence River. But due to contamination of those waters, in this seemingly mass abundance, they were experiencing a lot of scarcity. And uh, so in Toronto, there's actually a, a fair amount of rainwater harvesting going on 
because that rainwater has not yet been contaminated to the extent that the surface waters have. A similar thing in New Orleans, uh, when Katrina happened, a number of uh, readers of my books uh, wrote in saying how grateful they were for the knowledge of the water harvesting practices because whereas they were surrounded by water, none of it was usable. Uh, not just drinking, but they couldn't even irrigate it with it. It was so contaminated. But by capturing the rainwater, they were able to do all right. Um, and as they enhance their system, do quite well. In addition, um, let's say there's no contamination in the, uh, in the picture. Water harvesting is so key because it buffers all extremes. It, it reduces flooding in the wet times, reduces flooding for the people downstream of those capturing the water. It uh, can also capture and infiltrate the rain when it does fall to the extent that if we have drought, we have more water banked. We've got more saved capital in our groundwater table and even to some degree in our surface waters. Our rivers flow year-round, yet it's not raining all the time. So how is that possible? Basically what's happening is the rivers continue to flow even when it's not raining because of the slow release of the water infiltrated into the soil. So in both dry and wet climates, the more we can infiltrate, invest, and bank water into our soils, the more we'll have available in the times when there's no rain and the extreme times of drought so that that water flow can continue. Water can continue to be available. And then in times of abundance, by infiltrating that water, it's within the soil rather than on the surface. So we reduce flooding, we reduce erosion. Really, I, I see water harvesting is one of many different means of ecological, financial and, and investment. And what I mean by that is uh, so often we just consume our savings, we consume our capital. This is happening throughout the Western U.S. I just read that 75% of the water loss in the Colorado River uh, watershed is due to excessive groundwater pumping. And it's, it's really bad in California right now. Pumping that groundwater, that's our savings. That's, that's what we should only draw on in extreme times of need. But we're drawing on it all, all the time. That's the primary or sole source of water for so many of our cities for irrigation, for mines and so on. But with the water harvesting, it's an opportunity for us to shift and instead rely primarily or even solely on our surplus income, the rainfall, as opposed to the savings, what's stored in our aquifers and our surface waters. One of the things that I've studied is natural resource law and policy. And it's very interesting moving westward across the United States, the different laws regarding water harvesting. Yeah. I mean, here in Pennsylvania, I have like nothing to worry about when it comes to harvesting water. Yet the Pennsylvania DEP does not distinguish between black or gray water. So I can't install a gray water system without being fined like crazy. Do you encounter many of those kinds of law and policy issues when it comes to rainwater harvesting? Yeah, they're everywhere. And, uh, Basically, what I oftentimes tell people is, okay, um, the human laws, they shift and, and they change. And we need to be aware of them. We need to work with them. But the main laws we should be paying attention to is natural law. So um, regardless of how the authorities look at gray water or black water, 
we need to understand the characteristics, the, the patterns of gray water and black water and how different. And based on our understanding of these two, how would we manage those waters appropriately in a safe way and in a way that we can improve their quality and the quality and the health of the environment in which they're located. And human laws and policy, I think they're striving to do that, but sometimes there seems to be politics and, and other things I don't always understand involved, and it diverts away from natural law. So in your area where your black water and gray water looked at the same, that says to me is there's probably a good likelihood of more contamination of groundwater and other waters due to looking at them the same. Because if we take gray water flow out of black water flow, like if we divert the gray water, the water from our sink or bathtub away from the toilet water flow, the toilet water would be black water. It's called black water because there's more organic matter in it. Gray water, it's not so dark, so there's not so much organic matter in it. And that organic matter is the food for bacteria and whatnot, some of which can be harmful. Like we want to avoid salmonella, which can, is an E. coli, definitely in black water, but much less so in gray water. So if we divert our gray water flow upstream of the black water flow, we can manage that water much more easily with simpler systems with much less danger than we would in managing black water. Something uh, David Eisenberg from the Development Center for Appropriate Technology, a question he asked me, which I just loved, and now I incorporate in all my gray water talks, is it's a question. What is the most dangerous thing we can do with gray water? And the answer to that is turn it into black water because black water is so much more difficult to manage. And when gray water harvesting code requires us to store gray water in a tank, it turns into black water. So there's an example of human law that is not in balance or alignment with natural law. And thankfully, that such laws are, are starting to change. That used to be the case in Arizona that you had to store your gray water in a tank. No longer in 2001, the law changed. New Mexico followed suit, Western Texas, California. So many are following Arizona's lead now, which has been great. So we're starting to get the law, the human laws back in alignment with natural law. And I'll give an example with rainwater harvesting. In Colorado, it was illegal to harvest rainwater in a tank, rainwater from your roof. This was the human law. But some great folks, including uh, Bjorn Courtney, an engineer there, um, decided to look and see, well, is there any validity to this policy? And they found that by doing a, a lot of test plots on an undeveloped plot of land that still had its in native vegetation and all in Douglas County outside Denver, in a year of rain, average rain, they would not lose more than 3% of the rain falling on the site to runoff. And the reason... There was a law in, in Colorado saying you could not harvest rainwater on your own site in a tank is that it was believed you would be robbing water from those downstream that are currently dependent on that runoff water. But what Bjorn Courtney and others showed is 
you're not stealing any water because just 3% in an average year runs off anyway uh, under natural conditions. And only in the most extreme years would you lose as much as 15% of the rainfall to runoff. That would be in a year of biblical rain. So they took this to the legislature, and by showing the scientific data, the law was changed, at least for some. You know, it, it needs to change more. So now anyone who's on their own well and their own uh, compost toilet or septic system, they can legally harvest rainwater off their roof in a tank, no problem. But the people still connected to the grid, they're not yet allowed to. So things are still shifting. Because what Bjorn showed is when we build on a site and create a roof or other hard surface, we then generate more runoff than existed in pre-development conditions. And we should have the right to capture that runoff that we created because it didn't exist before to the extent that it will after paving. Thank you for taking my mention of black water and gray water and running with that. It was interesting for me when I was having the conversation with members of the DEP because the people who had come through their education and training later were more inclined to want to change those rules and regulations as opposed to the folks who had been in that position longer. And it gives me some hope that those things will change over time. Yeah, this is just why I love the cycle of life and mortality. It helps us evolve even better if those of us getting on in years are able to evolve and take on new ideas. And many of us do. But uh, even if we can't, it's fine because we'll we'll decompose in not the not too distant future and release our nutrients for those to follow to go further. One of my geology professors, he's like, look, guys, when I started teaching this, there were no plate tectonics. That was just a new idea that we all laughed at. And now look where we are. Exactly. And one thing, if maybe I could, it feels to me we're on this uh, idea of evolution here. And I've been doing some workshops and all with the Regenesis group in Santa Fe. And what's been wonderful is how much work they're doing around the idea of regeneration and how important it is that we continue to regenerate our enthusiasm, our will, our passion in what we're doing and also regenerate what we're doing. Not in a way that we're, we just continue to do what we've always done, but to do so in a way that we're continually evolving so things continue to stay fresh for ourselves. We build on what we've already done, but we don't limit ourselves to stay there. We can evolve to new levels, new understandings and abilities. And I was finding recently here in southern Arizona, we're in very severe drought. And uh, for the third year now, it looks like we're going to only get about half our uh, normal rainfall. We also find uh, we're hotter than normal. So we're losing what little water we, we got even quicker to evaporation. That's the crazy thing about a warming climate is water becomes more volatile. It moves, it leaves more quickly. So I was depressed because I was seeing all over southern Arizona a massive tree die off as trees were getting stressed and in the city. And I was even noticing die back here at our own site. And 
I don't know why I finally snapped out of it, but thank goodness I did. <laughs> I think I think the reason I snapped out of it is I just thought I shifted from being depressed about the situation to looking at it and going, okay, what can I learn from this? Why are these plants that are dying back? Why are they dying back but others aren't? And how can I build on the success of, of those plants, those life forms that are still doing well? And I realized with a number of those that had dieback, they were borderline plants. They were plants that, um, they were exotics that we brought in. They were more water needy, less heat tolerant. And, uh, instead of uh, just being depressed by their, their setbacks, instead realized, oh, well, this is an awesome opportunity to start experimenting with succession plants. And as all the reports I've read say, we're going to become much hotter and much drier than we are now with climate change. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's get proactive on this and let's start seeing and developing more ideal plant palettes. And so I started planting succession plants. I started shifting stuff out. So would go so far as replacing a fig tree, and boy, do I love figs, with an apple cactus, which just uses a fraction of the water, but also has amazing fruit. It's just a different fruit. And it was so invigorating to realize, wow, I, I don't have to give up fruit. It's just this one kind of fruit. But yet I get to try and then on a regular basis, enjoy these new fruits that I hadn't been participating in. And I need to make one thing clear here. People might be thinking, well, he has to shift from a fig to a cactus. What's going on there? Now, I'm different than most people I come across that are harvesting water in the U.S. in that I have, okay, let me give a little background here. The man that set me on my current path is an African water farmer, Mr. Zephaniah Piri Maseko, who lives in the driest region of Zimbabwe. And in 1995, I had the opportunity to visit him. And I was fresh from my permaculture course taken in 1993, where I had read about, heard about all these integrated systems, but I'd never experienced a whole integrated system. And when I got on his site, that's what was going on. And my mind was blown. I only spent a day with him. But I was amazed how he had converted a wasteland into a relative oasis just by what he and his family had done with hand tools to plant the rain, to invest the free local on-site resources in a way that generated more resources. It was a true living system. His tanks were the soil primarily, not purchase tanks. And he did so that way because he said after he built his first rainwater tank from which he collected water from his roof to, you know, to drink and all, he was so proud. He said, yeah, look at this. I've got this clean water available anytime. And he's a real religious guy. And uh, he said that God spoke to him then and he said, ah, Zephaniah, you are such a selfish man. And he said, what do you, what do you mean? He then realized that he was never going to invite all his neighbors to take water from that well too. Just his family would. And he realized, wow, this is not, this is not a giving tank. This is just for me and my family. And then he looked to his side and he saw the simple depression, this basin, this rain garden that he had made. And he realized, wow, that, that is the tank for everyone. That is the tank for all because it infiltrates the rain that falls on my site into my site. But it infuses the soil and it moves through the soil 
throughout my site and off my site. Thus, I'm harvesting and investing water for me and everyone because it benefits my vegetation. It benefits in the long term the vegetation of those downstream. And it's mitigating and reducing flooding for those downstream. That was where he realized he was going to focus his work. And I just loved it. And the other thing I just loved about being with him and being in Southern Africa is in the majority world where people seemingly have less, because by our standards, he would be, if you just looked at his income, he'd be poor. But I felt, and I believe he's very rich because he, he knows so much. He's helping the community so much that I'm kind of going on a tangent here. I was last there in 1995, 19 years ago, and then I had a chance to return this January. I was afraid when I went back that I just believed his story. He's such a good storyteller. And it really wasn't as good as I remember. But when I got back, it was so much better than I remembered. There was so much more vegetation. The trees were bigger. There was so much production. There was water seeping out of the soil everywhere. People were telling me that zebra were coming in to visit the site, and no one had seen zebra in decades in the area. And it reeked of rotting fruit because he couldn't keep, he and his family and neighbors couldn't keep up with the harvest. It was just phenomenal. And he had evolved his systems and done so much more since I was last there. And he's now in his late 80s. He's blind in one eye, deaf in a year, one ear, hard to get around, but whip smart as ever and just incredible. So back to where I started here of how I'm different or might seem odd from some harvesting water in the U.S. I feel Mr. Peary's challenge was his greatest strength. He had no choice but to live within the limitation of his on-site water budget. He could not afford, nor did he have access to a deep groundwater table. So the only groundwater he can access is that which he accesses with shallow hand-dug wells. And he rises those groundwater tables, raises them with the, the rainwater he harvests. And he can't call in a water truck. He can't rely on municipal water. It doesn't exist. So when I came home, because of the challenge he set forth for me, where, well, one thing I tell people a lot is I told him how bad the water situation was in my area and how I wanted to leave. And he said, you can't leave. You got to go back and you have to set your roots deeper than you ever thought possible. Because if you run from your problems, if you run from this depleting water situation, you're just going to plant problems everywhere you go. So do you have to go back and figure out solutions? And then if you're able to do that, if you ever leave, you have the ability to plant solutions as opposed to problems. So I came back striving to do just that, but I gave myself the challenge that I wanted to live within the limitations of my on-site water budget here in the middle of the city on just an eighth of an acre. So I don't allow myself to use city water, even though it's available, on the majority of our plantings. I don't allow city water into my house. I only use rainwater. And if I'm going to plant a more water needy fruit tree, an exotic fruit tree, I have to plant both rain and gray water before I plant the tree. You know, we typically do the reverse. We plant the tree and then figure out the water later. But with this system, you can't. So I'm limiting myself to working within the limitations of my on-site free resources. But that limitation, I found, has become this amazing leverage bar 
because it forces me to get creative where I otherwise wouldn't to make it work within that constraint. And it's been awesome. And so the constraint that I was presented with our drought and this die off, it was an opportunity to remember, oh, wait, what was this challenge I gave for myself? Let's do it again. Let's start shifting the palette. Something a friend of mine who's an author says is that our limitations are what set us free in our creativity. And it sounds like you're finding that in the landscape with your water budget. Oh, absolutely. And with difficult neighbors. I found that one of my solutions for that is that strawberries make great neighbors, much better than a fence. Yeah, absolutely. I had one neighbor who was, well, he was verbally attacking me in public and on the neighborhood listserv and many others in the neighborhood. So I decided to make some mesquite brownies. They're made from the native mesquite tree that I've been planting with neighbors along our streets and irrigating with street runoff. So I made him uh, these brownies and gave it to him for the holidays. He answered the door. He's like, well, you know, what, what the hell is this? And I said, oh, I, I just really appreciate that you're part of my community. You're one of my neighbors. And uh, I wanted to share this with you. And he totally broke down crying. He said no one had ever done anything like that for him in the neighborhood. Ever since then, he's been my greatest ally. One of my ongoing mantras is just the idea that kindness costs me nothing. And it's a lot easier to sleep when you act with kindness as opposed to reactive anger or whatnot. We've only got a little bit of time left. And before I get to your final thoughts for the audience, I was wondering if you could handle or I was wondering if you would take two listener questions. Sure. The first question for you is from Ariel, and she asks, what do you have to say about fog harvesting? and coastal areas blanketed by fog for part of the year. So if you're in an area, a coastal area, where you are blanketed by fog at certain times of the year, you are fog rich. That is such an asset because that fog is helping cool down temperatures and reducing evaporative loss. But you can also capture that water, and I'm sure it's already naturally being captured all around you because the indigenous vegetation of such areas has adapted its leaf structure to be much more conducive of enabling, encouraging that fog and that atmospheric moisture to condense around the leaves and the leaflets. And then it rains down and irrigates the tree and the surrounding vegetation. I've currently got a blog up on my website, harvestingrainwater.com, that goes into fog harvesting and has more resources and different ways of doing it. So for the details, I'd, I'd recommend you go there. But what's become kind of popular lately, at least in some of the media, is this idea of creating these um, sails, these fog harvesting sails that looks like a shade cloth that is put on a ridgeline with a gutter below. And it mimics what the indigenous vegetation does. But rather than dripping the water onto the soil, it drips into a gutter, which then goes to a tank. And people use that for drinking water, irrigation, and other things. And I love that system, but I'm much more intrigued by a hybrid system in Peru, and others have done this, where they used to have a fog forest of these she-oak trees that were great at naturally harvesting the fog and investing it back into the soil and the biomass. But they were cut down, uh, most of them, uh, used for lumber and other things. And when that happened, springs started to dry up, 
creek flows started to reduce because the the source of the water had been taken out of the system. You could say the ultimate source is the fog, but it was the trees, the vegetation that made it accessible. So they're now putting in these shade sails, these fog sails, rather, and guttering that water. But then they're directing it to swale networks to irrigate newly planted she oaks and they're trying to bring back that forest to bring back the ecosystem the larger living system i so prefer that over just the plain old fog sail gutter and tank because the vegetation's alive it's part of a living system a regenerative system that goes on year after year with or without us so whatever her interest is in the fog harvesting you can go either way i just encourage you to incorporate a living element to the larger system as you play with all this. And it sounds like you're in a in the prime place to play with it. And the other question comes from Joel, and he asks, he'd like to hear about avoiding wet basements while still sinking rainwater into the yard, which is a current problem for him, and considerations when building a rain garden in a packed clay soil, such as the wet climate where he lives near Philadelphia. The answer to the question is right around him. What does the environment do in those wet clay soils already? What grows there? And what grows in the really wet areas um, with that clay soil? And what are those living things doing? So the vegetation is a living pump. And it sounds to me that it would be beneficial to plant more living pumps in areas where you've got the water seeping into the basement. I have um, some great friends in Columbia, Missouri. They all have basements with water seeping into them continuously. And they all have these sump pumps going 24-7, which just struck me as madness. It's like, why, why create a home with a basement that's dependent on this mechanical pump that could fail? I've been encouraging him, and he started to practice the planting of more water-needy vegetation in these wetter areas. And, of course, selecting species that are also producing food, wildlife habitat, medicinal production, and so on. So I would say increase the pumping ability of your plant palette in those areas in a way that's providing other additional services that are needed. And as you create your rain gardens... Don't put them on the upslope side of the house, rather put it on the downslope side of the house and maybe move more to the periphery of the yard as opposed to against the house. And that way you can get more natural drainage away from the home. But the main thing is look at that current liability and as you think critically about it, how can you shift that into an asset? And what in the natural world is currently doing just that? And how can you mimic and build on that, that which is already working in your area. With a similar issue on the space that I work with, I have planted willows to help reduce some of those wet spots in the yard. And it's been very, very productive for building biomass and capturing carbon, producing an area of wildlife habitat, and really helping to reduce that standing water. Yeah. And as you mentioned, generating that biomass, you're creating more of a sponge so not only is the plant uptaking water, but as it creates more organic matter and more of that's added to the soil, the soil becomes more porous in 
heavy uh, wet times. So you actually can create a soil that's better draining by adding biomass. And the wild thing is the same thing works in a more hyper-arid setting where, like, say you have sandy soil that just drains the water right out. The biomass also helps hold on to it. It, it works on both extremes. I love natural and living systems. They do so many things, and all we have to do is be a part of it. Yeah. As we should. As I was reminded last night as the power was out because of a storm, I felt very much like an animal again. It gets dark, my children get sleepy, we go to bed. And you get such an amazing light show from the stars just before going to bed to infuse your dreams with good things. It's a beautiful life the more that this path is explored for me and the others that I know who are on it. And I thank you for being a part of this journey, both for myself in this interview and for the others who you've touched through your work and who will hear from you in this conversation. Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? Sure. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, the water harvesting, it's just bait. It's bait to entice you, to invite you into looking at your free on-site resources. And that resources probably isn't the best word, because the way we typically use that is it's, it's something that we take advantage of. So let me say it this way instead. Water harvesting is just one of many invitations to tap into the free on-site potentials that we have. The sun, the wind, the shade, the fertility are all many others. And I just welcome people to tap in. And if anyone's come upon my books or already have them, just want to make sure they know I revised my first book, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, Volume 1, came out with a second edition last summer and added over 100 pages of new info and 120 new images that go into these other harvests that go beyond water, integrated with the harvest of water. So I rec recommend people tap into that. And the other thing I want to say is in there, I've got eight common sense principles, like little guidelines, a little mantra to remind you of what to think about to ensure you get a, an effective integrated system. But I don't want folks to think that that's it for the principles. I want them to read that and think about, well, what principles might I want to formulate as they get more experience and practice? Because the whole thing is meant to be continuing evolution. Um, the book was just one step in my evolution the new edition, a new evolution, and the ongoing process. I just want to throw out one principle that's in the book, but not laid out as one of the eight primary principles. And that is, if you guys want to start harvesting water, start harvesting water where you've got an adjoining hardscape surface, like a roof or a road or a patio, because there you can double, triple, or even more increase your available water and potential. Because you have the rain falling directly on you, on the soil, but you also have the rain falling on that adjoining hardscape surface. And if it's the same surface area as your planting space, you're able to double your rainfall because you get the rain falling on the soil area and the hardscape. If it's greater, you can increase it even more. And even if water scarcity is not an issue, that's the first and best opportunity to start reducing flooding elsewhere and to start to further rejuvenate or enhance your living system. So start small, start simple, and start where you can turn runoff 
into run on, which is right on. Thank you so much for this conversation today, Brad. I really enjoyed myself. It was a good time. And I learned a lot more coming from a water-rich state here in Pennsylvania about the things that I can do to make a difference and share with my neighbors. So thank you for being a part of this. You bet, Scott. And hey, because I just can't help myself, one last little tidbit is the more living you get in your living system, the more life you get, the more bioremediation you get. And my last little fact is we had research done by researchers here at the university that found that street runoff harvesting rain gardens with a lot of life, a lot of mulch, organic matter, they had 10 times the natural bioremediation ability of stormwater control measures without such biomass and life. So when you start working with these living systems, the amazing thing is the domino theory starts working with you. All these things you hadn't anticipated, these beneficial positive things start happening rather than negative things. And that's when you know you're on the right track. And that was Brad Lancaster. You can find out more about him and his books at harvestingrainwater.com. What I really enjoyed about this episode was Brad's continued reference to building and using living systems. This was something reinforced to me during my permaculture education by a teacher training instructor, Rico Zuck. Rico said that we have to design ourselves out of the system. Whether we are working in our backyard or in international aid or community development, we're only there for a limited amount of time, and usually with a restricted pool of resources. The ideal is that our designs will be integrated to the point that they are resilient and functional when we are no longer available to directly oversee them. I also consider the importance, especially in designing for disasters, of systems that can survive if they are damaged by a storm, negligence, or ill intent. The principles and ethics of permaculture provide an excellent foundation for that, and Brad's work adds to the strategies available for harvesting water. If after listening to this episode, you would like to hear another perspective on water harvesting, I recommend checking out my earlier interview with Craig Sponholtz of Watershed Artisans. That conversation complements what Brad said here and reminds me that life and living systems are the way to slow down the forces of entropy and recycle resources in the landscape and in our lives. In the show notes for this particular episode, you'll find links to Brad's site and his book, as well as his blog entry for fog harvesting. I've also included how to find out more information about David Eisenberg and the Development Center for Appropriate Technology and Zephaniah Piri Maseko. I know I've referenced it before, but when thinking about water, I come back to the saying from the disaster preparedness community that we can survive three minutes without air, three hours without shelter, three days without water, and three weeks without food. Water is vital to our health and well-being and our ability to grow food. If we're going to create a regenerative civilization around sustaining systems, then we need to ensure the availability of clean water wherever we wish to live. We need to harvest water. Save it when we have a surplus so we can use it when we have a deficit. That way we can borrow from ourselves rather than having to pump that water and go into debt to future generations. Wherever you are on your permaculture journey, I'm here to help you. Get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. 
You can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the permaculture podcast and on Twitter at permaculture CST. Until the next time, create a better world each day by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.